Tom is continuing in his series on the book of Acts, and today we're reading Acts verses 17 through 34. Please follow along, follow on the screen. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he visited them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a significant number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason and were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these people were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a significant number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brothers sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he observed that the city was full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers as well were conversing with him. And some were saying, what could this scavenger of tidbits want to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears so we want to know what these things mean. Now the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. 
Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything that is in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might feel around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his descendants. Therefore, since we are the descendants of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and thought. So having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to scoff, but others said, we shall hear from you again concerning this. So Paul went out from among them but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word of the gospel is powerful and that Paul was courageous to speak the truth among those that scoffed. But we thank you, Lord, that someday we will see Dionysus, the Areopagite, and Damaris, and others because of your great work in their hearts. Thank you, Lord, for Tom, and bless his teaching, we pray in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. I know that it's no news to anybody here that the culture of our present age uh, declares with great confidence and complacency that there is no truth that applies to everyone, certainly not a truth that can actually be known. So you have your truth, and I have my truth, and no one gets to impose their truth on anyone else. How convenient. Tolerance is the watchword of the age. But make no mistake, there is one thing that our culture absolutely will not tolerate, and that is the assertion that there is a truth to which all of mankind is accountable, and that that truth has been made known. That assertion is so repugnant to this world, but it is the very foundation of everything that we see in this chapter. When you get right down to it, it's the foundation of everything we find in the Bible. But it's very much in focus here in Acts chapter 17. My title for this morning's message is, How We Know What's True. In the chapter, we find, three, uh, we find three decisive answers to that question, and they're not really separate answers. They're, they're kind of different facets of the same essential answer. The first one we find in verses 1 through 9 
and it is connected with uh, it's connected with what happened in Thessalonica. Now I want to point out that uh, in the preceding chapter, in chapter 16, the Holy Spirit working through the missionary team of Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke established the very first community of believers on the European continent. And that first church was in the city of Philippi, the Macedonian city of Philippi. Paul and Silas became imprisoned in Philippi for preaching Christ, but God shook the foundations of that prison. He broke their shackles and he freed them through a a mighty and miraculous deliverance that nobody could explain away. Their jailer and his whole household came to, to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of that mighty deliverance, and they were baptized. By the time Paul and his missionary team left the city of Philippi, the Holy Spirit had created a thriving church in that important city. Now as chapter 17 opens, Paul and his team travel from Philippi to Thessalonica, another city, really the next significant city of Macedonia. In the first few verses of chapter 17, Luke once again gives us a a snapshot of the Apostle Paul's regular mode of operation that he practiced every time he came to a a new city during the course of his missionary journeys. The very first place that Paul preached after coming into Thessalonica was the synagogue, you guessed it, the synagogue of the Jews. Verses 2 and 3 lay out for us the essential truth that Paul preached in that synagogue. It says, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, which scriptures was he looking at at that point? The Old Testament, because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. So he, he, he reasoned with them from the Old Testament scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Now, I hope by now in our study of Acts, those words sound very familiar. Uh, we saw the same, these same foundational truths proclaimed in each of Peter's sermons in the early chapters of the book, and we, we saw that this exact same foundational message uh, was in Paul's sermon in, in chapter 13 in Pisidian Antioch. The Christ, the Messiah of God, promised through dozens of generations of God's faithful prophets throughout the Old Testaments. That's the message. That Christ had to suffer and he had to be raised from the dead just as the prophets foretold. And now the identity of that long-promised Christ has been revealed. And, and that, that long-promised Christ is Jesus of Nazareth, the one who perfectly fulfilled many, many prophecies in his first advent. When Paul preached these same truths about Jesus at the synagogue in Thessalonica, the response initially was very, very good. Luke tells us that some of the Jews and a great many of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Verse 5 says, But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from 
the marketplace formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. The last thing that the Jewish leadership in Thessalonica wanted was a synagogue overrun by Gentiles. And it was absolutely unthinkable to them that the synagogue would be populated by Jews or Gentiles who worshipped this Jesus who had been condemned by the leaders of the Jerusalem temple as a fake Messiah and a blasphemer and who had been publicly executed on the cross by the order of the Roman authorities. The mob in Thessalonica that had been stirred up by the Jewish synagogue leaders there made their way to the home of a man named Jason. But when they got there, Paul and the other missionaries were not at that home. So the mob dragged Jason out before the city authorities, and they began making accusations that Jason and the the other men that he had been harboring at his home were traitors against Rome because they served a king other than Caesar. Now, that was accurate, but it was a king whose kingdom is not of this world. It was no threat to Caesar. When Jason and the others who had been arrested paid their required bail, it's called a pledge in some of your translations, they were released. Now, I want to make sure we recognize that what happened to Jason here, and far worse, would happen to many, many others as the Holy Spirit spread the gospel like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire. One of the reliable realities of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it paints a target, not only on those who proclaim it, but on those who receive it. And in fact, it also paints a target on the backs of anyone who is kind and hospitable to those who proclaim the gospel. But that must never stop the proclamation of the gospel in any place. At the very heart of what we proclaim is the fact that that life and well-being are not found in physical safety or predictability. So why would we pull our punches in preaching the gospel? Because people might might not be safe. Real life, real well-being are found only in relationship with God through union with Jesus Christ, and they're found nowhere else. And that means no one can ever take away real life or real real well-being from from those who have been to whom it has been given. So while we should do reasonable things to protect those to whom we bring the message of the truth, we cannot make their physical safety or their earthly freedom the test of whether we should speak or not speak. Colin McDougall said a long time ago to me, until Christians are willing to die for the gospel, the gospel will not spread. We speak the truth in love and we trust God to protect or to withhold protection as he sees fit. He will glorify himself either way. And he will advance the gospel of Christ by both means. We need to accept this. We need to acknowledge this. After the arrest of Jason, the brethren in Thessalonica sent Paul and Silas away by night 
to Berea, the next destination, also a city of Macedonia. And where did they go first? The synagogue. Luke tells us that the, that the Jews in Berea were, quote, more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. The word that he uses here means fair-minded or teachable, teachable. And he says, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. All right, in Thessalonica, we saw that the way that we know what's true is that the scriptures foretold the truth about Jesus. In Berea, we find that the way we know the truth is by testing the truth, by testing every truth claim that we encounter with Scripture. These guys are an excellent example to, to all generations of mankind. Again, the word translated noble-minded means teachable. It does not mean gullible. The Bereans were not easily swayed even by the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Unlike the folks that we'll meet in Athens here shortly, the Bereans had no interest whatsoever in new truth. That's because they knew that new truth is not truth. It was quite the opposite. They were firmly rooted and grounded in very, very old truth. In fact, truth that is so old that it's as old as God. So their starting point with any truth claim that they had not heard before was skepticism. Now Luke does not rebuke the Bereans for their initial skepticism toward Paul's teachings. In fact, he commends them. Again, they are a marvelous example to people in every age and in every place regarding how we should approach any truth claim that any person sets before us. Since it was good and right for these worshipers of God to test what they heard from the mouth of the apostle Paul, who had been appointed by the resurrected Christ, and it is certainly good and right for you and me to apply the same test to anything that we hear. And that absolutely includes my sermons. What is the test? What was it that convinced these skeptical men in Berea to receive and believe Paul's declaration that Jesus is the Christ? Well, it's a very straightforward test. Paul's message matched up flawlessly with the Old Testament Scriptures. And they knew that that teaching was the revelation breathed out by God through his faithful prophets. That was the test then, and that's still the test now. Now, I heard a sermon on this passage a long time ago. I haven't been able to track it down again, but the title of the sermon was How to Listen to a Sermon. And it was about these few verses related to Paul's experience in Berea. It also, the how to read a sermon also applies to how to listen to uh, any message and how to read an article and how to receive any truth claim from any source. And the answer is you start with healthy skepticism, not unwillingness to learn, but skepticism, and then you test 
everything that you hear or read against the one unadulterated source of truth, and that is the Word of God. For the Bereans, that was the Old Testament. For you and I who live after the completion of the canon of Scripture, it is both testaments of the Bible. All of which is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It is through the precious and magnificent promises of God that we find in Scripture that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. That's 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Peter 1. All right. We must test everything against the one unadulterated source of truth, the Word of God. But we, what we must not miss here is that in this first generation of the church, when the New Testament Scriptures were just beginning to be written down, the Old Testament was sufficient to test what Paul and his co-workers were preaching about Jesus. About Jesus. And that's because the gospel of Jesus Christ is presented clearly and completely in the Old Testament. If you don't know where that actually happens in the Old Testament, talk to me later. <laughs> I'll send you some stuff. The Bereans were able to confirm the legitimacy of Paul's teaching gospel of his gospel by testing it against the words of the Old Testament prophets and what they found was perfect consistency. Paul's reception at the synagogue in Berea was excellent. Verse 12 says that many of those who heard the gospel believed from both Jews and Gentiles. But some of the same Jews who had sought to arrest Paul and his co-workers in Thessalonica heard that Quote, the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also. So they came there likewise, agitating and stirring up the crowds. <laughs> and so once again, the believers in Berea sent Paul away. It says they sent him to go as far as the sea. So they sent him back to the coast. Silas and Timothy remained somewhere along the coast of Macedonia, while those who then conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and that's our next destination. And Athens, the same city we know as Athens, Greece today. Paul instructed those who had escorted him safely to that city to send Silas and Timothy to him there as soon as possible. In Athens, we see the third facet to how we know the truth. And that is that we must hear the truth that God has made known and we must turn to him. What Paul encountered in the great Greek city of Athens troubled his soul deeply. While he was waiting there for Silas and Timothy to come and join him, it says his spirit was being provoked within, within him as he was beholding the city full of idols, the city full of idols. Kent Hughes cites the Greek philosopher Pausanias, who visited Athens about 50 years after this time that Paul was there, Pausanias said it was easier to meet a god or a goddess on the main street of Athens than to meet a man. That was 
true because the population of the city was about 10,000, but there were about 30,000 statues of gods. But Paul was anything but silenced by this oppressive presence of Satan's influence in the city of Athens. Verse 17 says that Paul was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he was reasoning in the marketplace every day with anyone who happened to be present. Verse 18 says, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? I, I love the word play there, I mean the, in English. Because you have, you have these idle babblers, I-D-O-L, accusing Paul of being an idle babbler, I-D-L-E. Others were saying he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. I find that just, I find that marvelously humorous. Strange deities. Now, if there was ever a case of strange bedfellows, it was this. Epicureans and Stoics held to very different systems of belief and practice. Epicureans believed the gods were entirely uninterested in and disconnected from the world, the material world, and that this life is all that we have as human beings. They're the ones who, you saw I accidentally cut and pasted it into the, they're the ones who say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. And when you die, you just cease to exist. That was the Epicurean understanding. So they believed our greatest good is found in self-indulgent pleasures. The Stoics, on the other hand, were pantheists. They believed that God was in all things, including us, that they were that that therefore God was bound together with creation rather than separate from creation. And they prided themselves on rigorous self-discipline to preserve the purity of the physical body. Now, again, some of them said. Paul seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They brought Paul to the Areopagus, which is a, it's really an a outcropping of stones, a big elevated stone uh, hill that's uh, northwest of Athens. And it was named for the Greek god Ares, whose Roman counterpart was Mars. And that's where we get the later designation Mars Hill, Paul, Paul's sermon at Mars Hill. By Paul's day, the Areopagus had become a gathering place where philosophers and religious men assembled to hear all manner of different kinds of teaching. Luke's little parenthesis in verse 21 is a great summation of the spirit of Athens in Paul's day. It says, now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Isn't that great? Those who escorted Paul to the Areopagus said, may we know what this new teaching is that you're proclaiming? For you're bringing some strange things to our ears, and we want to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now think about it. The only reason that Paul's teaching was new and strange to these lovers of man-sourced wisdom was because they had so utterly cast aside the revelation that God had graciously given of himself to humanity ever since humanity existed. All of mankind started 
with the knowledge of the one true God. They were delighted to have their ears tickled by any new and strange truth claim as long as nobody claimed to actually know the truth that applies to all men. These ancient Athenians would have fit right in with modern American culture. Back in the 1980s, I've mentioned this before, I once saw a Church of Unity bumper sticker and it said, to question is the answer. Everybody find that real satisfying? That captures the spirit of the Athenians in Paul's day and it captures the spirit of our God-forsaking age right now. Any truth is fine as long as it isn't actually true. But of course, the unknown does not save. When Paul took the podium at the Areopagus, he said to the audience, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. That was not a compliment. He said, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And Paul then proceeded to tell them about the God who is and who has made himself known. Paul manifested zero tolerance for the utterly false notion that the truth about God is somehow unknown or unknowable. The biblical worldview that Paul laid out for the Athenians here, the Athenians who loved to hear any truth but the truth, was this. Here's what Paul set before them. There is one God. He created all things. He gives life and breath to all living things. He sustains everything that he created. In him we live and move and are. And that means that if he ever stopped sustaining his creation, we and everything else would cease to exist. And he says, God is not far from us. And this is an important point. He's, he's declaring that God is intimately involved in his creation. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And then he says that we humans are his offspring. And he even quotes their philosophers who declared that. And as his offspring created by him, we know that created things cannot take the place of the creator. That's just common sense. It's also revelation. All of these truths about God and man are not only knowable, they are clearly known. They are revealed by God. Because human beings are the offspring and the image bearers of God who were created by God, it makes no sense at all that we who are the pinnacle of God's creation would, would dare to create so-called gods out of lesser created things like gold or silver or stones, things formed by the art and thought of man, as Paul puts it, and then worship them. It also means that we are utter fools for worshiping ourselves because we're just creatures. 
Yet that's exactly what mankind has done. In Romans 1, Paul says that even though God, since the creation of the world, made his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature clearly seen through what has been made, mankind has universally suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. We have shoved the truth under the rug and pretended that it doesn't exist or that it can't be known. And then we exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That is the universal indictment of mankind in Romans 1. It's not just pagans, it's mankind. But God did not leave mankind to respond only to general revelation. In other words, to his display of himself and his creation. God has spoken. He has given mankind his special revelation of himself through his word. And that word is both written and incarnate. It is both propositional and personal. And the personal revelation of God was in person. And that person is Jesus. Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 3 puts it like this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, Paul didn't spell all of this detail out to the Athenians. He didn't even give them the complete gospel as he himself lays it out in 1 Corinthians 15. He didn't even mention the name of Jesus. His message to the Athenians was more pre-evangelistic than evangelistic. But he put a boulder-sized rock in their shoe. In the last two verses of this little sermon, he said, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, this was not what these Athenians were accustomed to hearing. They had just been put on notice by the God who is and who has made himself known. And all of mankind will be judged. All of mankind will be judged based on each person's response to that which the one true God has made known about himself. Any claim that God is unknowable will not serve as an excuse because God has spoken. Again, Paul didn't give them the whole gospel, but he gave them more than enough to pierce the hearts of those whose hearts God had prepared to hear. Some in the crowd sneered at Paul, but others said, we need to hear you more concerning this. The last verse of the passage says, but some men joined him and believed. 
among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Friends, Paul's message was not a message of tolerance. It was not benign. It was not harmless. It was an uncompromising command from God to a people who had embraced the utter foolishness of relativistic, man-sourced truth, which is non-truth. It was a command to abandon all such foolishness and to hear and believe the truth that God was now proclaiming to them through Paul. Because what was at stake was their eternal destiny. And that's what, what is at stake for every human being, their eternal destiny. His message was not directed only to the Athenian philosophers and idol worshipers. It was a call that still stands today, and it is directed to all everywhere. And it is a call to repent, to turn away from every foolish thing that men devise to make it well with their souls or to win the favor of whatever they call God or gods, and to turn to the one true God, knowing that he is fixed today in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness through the man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul left the declaration of that coming judge and that coming judgment kind of hanging in the minds of the Athenian hearers without going further. If Paul's God-given assignment had been to demonstrate tolerance for other people's beliefs and truth claims, then Paul completely blew it. <laughs> but of course, that's not his assignment, and it's not our assignment. Paul kept his commission from God courageously here. He was not angry or argumentative. He was not even unkind. But he most definitely was not tolerant. Brothers and sisters, we who know Jesus remain in this world to make him known to others. God has left you and me in this world to tell all who will listen and all who won't that God has spoken. He has spoken through his creation. He has spoken through his prophets and apostles across dozens of generations of mankind. And most clearly and perfectly of all, he has spoken in his son. God has removed all guesswork about what is true about God and about man that man absolutely must know in order to be saved. And all who will not believe his witness concerning his son will soon be judged by his son. One of the most powerful statements that Jesus made in John 5 is he said, he said, not even the Father judges anyone, but all judgment has been given to the Son in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Think about that for a minute. That means that whoever does not agree with God that he or she will be judged by Jesus does not honor the Father. And that means there are a whole lot of people who say they worship the same God that we do, and they don't. 
Because whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. We are here to proclaim to all mankind that God has called all everywhere to turn from whatever is keeping them from faith in Jesus to faith in Jesus. Because if they don't, Jesus will be their judge. And they will be condemned for all eternity, which is how we all start out. Until, you are, until and unless you are saved by Jesus Christ through faith in him alone, you remain condemned. God may not intend for me or you to be the one who makes every part of the good news known to every person that we get to talk to about him, and that's okay. We may not even get past the bad news, and that's okay, because you and I don't save anyone. In 1 Corinthians 3, 7, Paul said, So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. That's a pretty potent statement. You and I may get the opportunity to plant a seed of the gospel or to even plant a seed of conviction of sin, of accountability to God. But we're nothing. We determine nothing. See, the beauty of being able to share the gospel is just that we get to participate in something God is doing. We're not the ones doing it. We're just agents. We're just agents of the living God. And that's all the reason we need to share the gospel with people everywhere. It's very liberating that, that the outcome does not depend on you and me. There is only one Lord of the harvest, we are merely instruments in his hands. But we must speak the truth that he has clearly made known, and we must do so as a habit of life that pervades our conversation with people in every place. That was said this morning in the worship, and it cannot be said enough. I need you to say that to me. I need to be reminded continuously why God left me here. In Jeremiah 23, 28, God said to his faithful, very young prophet, Jeremiah, let him who has my word speak my word in truth. We bear the truth, and that truth is the greatest news that anyone will ever hear. So let's share it. Loving Father, we confess and agree with you that we are nothing but instruments, but Father, you have chosen to use your image bearers to bear the message of your Son on this earth. And we want to be part of that. Father, we know that's why you left us here. We want to do what we are here to do. And so we pray, Father, even as Paul asked the Ephesians to pray for him, even as the saints in Acts chapter 4 asked of you, we ask Father, that you would grant to us boldness and that you would grant to us clarity in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we are utterly dependent on you. All of our adequacy is you. So make us useful, Father. We have the truth. Make us speak that truth in this world to your glory so that many may be saved. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.